Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel with oil approaching $80 a barrel and natural gas at multi-year highs. This week, we're taking a look at what that means for oil and gas producers and what investors can do with that information. Joining me to help me do that are my good friends, Jason Hall and Tyler Crow. Guys, thanks for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. As you, from all corners, well, three corners of the world. Yeah, we, we mentioned before we got started on the show, Tyler's joining us from, from Tbilisi. Last time we had him on the podcast, he was joining us from Africa, really the jet setter uh, uh, journeying all over the world. Tyler, what can you tell us about uh, you know, where you're at in Eastern Europe and what it's like to be living there for these uh, past couple of weeks? Well, it's only been two weeks. So uh, to say that I have a good feel for the country would be a really disingenuous statement. Um, moved here from, um, you know, my wife works for State Department, so we tend to move every few years. And, you know, it's, it's certainly not... It, Certainly not a uh, the Tbilisi that was part of the Soviet Socialist Republic, uh, the USSR. Uh, it is a thriving city. Uh, I look around right now, and there's probably about twenty high-rise apartment condos going right around me. So, a lot going on. Yeah. So, so Tyler, bringing us the perspective from from across the world, uh, getting getting familiar. Uh, uh, with this part of Eastern Europe, I think one area that you have uh, maybe a little bit more familiar with is what's going on in the oil and gas markets. And we're kind of in an interesting time here in that market. How do you like that transition? So if you look at oil, uh, oil prices roughly double um, over the past five years. But if you look at them today, we're roughly flat where we were 10 years ago. Obviously, a lot has happened over the past year. A lot has happened over the past five years in the energy market. If you're trying to put where we're at today in context to just where we've we've been how unique is this time and, and you know what, what do you make of where we are now in the cycle? I, well, I'll, I'll start here. I think the best way to explain what's happening right now, it starts about seven years ago, uh, 2014. Yeah. Um, we had a, from 2000, we, you know, can almost think of these in like chunks of seven years because 2007, 2008 up to 2014 was this very, very large push of, Everybody remember peak oil? Does anybody remember that? Like uh, oil north of $150 and everybody worried we're going to run out. And then, yeah, so uh, oil and gas companies just started pouring money into mega projects, like these massive projects that were super expensive to build uh, in names of like, anybody remember Kazagon and Gorgon LNG? These were mm -hmm. 20, 30, $40 billion projects that, we're going to hopefully stem the tide of peak oil. Then shale came around and all of a sudden we started getting, uh, shale started producing enormous amounts of oil and gas. And 20, it all kind of came to a precipice in 2014 where a lot of these developments came online with the addition of adding shale to the mix. And then we just, we had an oversupply. And since that time, we've been kind of working down all of those developments uh, since then, right about 2014, you really started to see uh, those developments come online. And then the, what was behind it, like the developments from 16, 17, 18, they started to gradually slowly decline. And investment in the sector since 2014, 2015 has been going down. And it's kind of been like, I can't remember which Austin Powers movie it was, but there was one where like, there's a, there, it's a crash scene, but it involves a steamroller and he's going two miles an hour. And we've been watching this for like seven years of just declining uh, spending on exploration, de 
declining spending on development. And it's all just all of a sudden coming to a head. Everyone's realizing now, hey, guess what? Our development bench for the next five to six years kind of looks like crap. And with demand actually starting to pick back up again, not ever, most people aren't 100% certain where those that next five to 10 years, or we'll call it seven, because seven seems to be a pretty good gauge of the oil and gas industry. Where does the next seven years come from? The important thing to remember too, is if you go back to seven years ago, we weren't talking about electric vehicles, anything like we are today, right? This was before the Model S was around. So there wasn't, I guess the, you know, the Prius, right? So you have hybrids, but full EVs were not even, were not even a thing. But if you look at that, at that chart, it's incredible. It's like a roller coaster from the beginning of 2010, where it's super high and prices started to peak that summer and then spent the next three years, two and a half, three years declining before oil prices bottomed in the 20s in early 2016, right? So we went from $115 a barrel in 2014 to in the 20s before stabilizing kind of around $40 or $50 for year. So as much as we're about where we were four or five years ago, man, the, the, the journey between then and now is, is enormous. I just want to hit on one thing, Nick, real quick before we keep the top, keep, keep the show moving here. Tyler was talking about the investing and the spending in particular. Um, one sector that we've seen enormous underspend is in offshore. These are some of the largest assets in the, in the, in the world that we know about. And they're some of the largest assets that can produce a lot of oil for a long time, right? Without having to have, so you think about fracking in these shale plays, right? You have to spend tons and tons of money every year to, to keep production up. You have to, you have to drill it. You have to keep drilling and keep drilling with a lot of these offshore plays. Once you make that initial investment, you can get decades of oil, but those initial investments can take a decade right by themselves. So a lot of that spending, a lot of that development is really is really what kind of undermined a lot of the global supply. And, and it's a big part of the reason that we're here, that we're, that we're where we are now. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 you know, Tyler, you mentioned we, we've basically underinvested in, in oil and gas, kind of turned off incremental investment for the most part, going back to 2016, which makes sense. Folks say, hey, we're not making money on this. We don't want to throw more good money after bats. So we're going to hold off on investment. But those bills have kind of come due as, as investment has gone down, demand keep sticking up. Obviously, 2020 was a special situation, uh, but we're in a scenario where, there, where there's undersupply in the market. And to correct that, you want to drill for oil. But uh, we're really seeing some reluctance to bring oil online. You have ESG concerns, a lot in Europe. You have activists in the US that are really constraining uh, the ability for folks to produce. So we're in this condition where folks don't want oil companies to produce, yet we need oil companies to produce in order to uh, you know, keep, keep pricing in check. What do you do in this world if you're if you're an oil business? Well, you know it's kind of you know, there. There's the combination of we can we'll, we'll just for a, a shorthand version we'll call it ESG, but there's also this component of you know we watched for the past I don't know four five six years of just oil and gas producers in the United States sh- repeatedly shoot themselves in the foot. Like yeah. we were getting incremental price increases that would have you know allowed them to pay down some debt, clean up the balance sheets, maybe even return some capital to uh, to shareholders, God forbid. No, they um, just drill more wells. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They would any any spare dime they could find, they would drill more wells. And that was the just, answer and, to every question. Let's just drill and more. fortunately, it is starting to look like there is greater capital discipline, in part because bankers aren't giving them money for these development projects. We could call it an ESG concern, or we could call it, you guys have obliterated billions of dollars in capital for seven years. Why is it different this time? Um, so with that, you're, you know, a lot of the independent producers, we had some of the smaller players, they're starting to fall off the vine here. All that's really left are the big play. A lot of the larger players who have either grown through consolidation or the integrated majors who have been kind of getting by on the strength of their balance sheet. Whether or not they're going to be able to raise capital either through free cash flow or from the capital markets to get the money for these drilling and development projects is yet to be seen. However, at today's prices, it's hard to not see a company like an ExxonMobil or ConocoPhillips, some of these larger people not making money and generating enough free cash flow to do something, whether that be pay off all the loans for the past seven years, kind of pay the bills or return capital or start actually increasing investment again for this next cycle, however long it takes. Yeah, it, it appears you mentioned these different seven-year periods where we're potentially at the launch of, of a new cycle. When you look at oil and gas, it kind of is governed by the capital cycle. You need uh, to starve the industry of capital to get conditions good enough to where it actually look attractive to capital again. And we're kind of in the scenario where, where things are, are looking attractive. You look, uh, you know, even... You know, uh, even the highest break evens you're looking at low 60s gets you into profitability. Now we're pushing 80. So really, everybody should be able to make money. Do you think now is a time where, given where we are in the cycle, these companies are investable? I think it depends, right? That's it's, that's and that's kind of been the same. It's the same answer that it's really been for a long time, because at the end of the day, I think you're probably going to get to that point in the cycle where rationality changes and money gets a little bit freer and easier, right? It's just given a little bit of time, people are going to make dumb decisions with capital. And this is an area where, you know, that's probably eventually going to happen again. But if you find companies <clears throat> that have low costs, that have a history of discipline, that are smart about how they allocate capital and that have some diversification in their business, um, I, I think that can, that can, make it really, really interesting. And there are a few companies that, that I think are really interesting right now. Yeah. Um, I, there's also a, a new dimension here that hasn't really been considered uh, up until 2020s and going into 2030s is, is up until today, there was little to no reason for any oil company to have a contingency plan for a world without oil. Yeah. Um, I think that today there needs to be an escape plan. Everyone needs their contingency of saying 15 years, we're going to, we're making a lot of, so like, let's, we're talking about the big companies. Again, the companies that are making investments that are going to pay off 10 to 15 years from now, uh, or start to dwindle from, from that time. Generally, I think it was, it was the CEO of Shell. It was a long time ago. Basically, what they said is with the amount of money that they spend, it's somewhere between 25 to $30 billion a year on capital expenditures with a two, $300 billion 
market cap company, what you're basically doing is you're turning over your entire asset base every 10 years. And so if you think of it in that way, how are they going to turn their asset base from 2021 to 2031? And I I would be shocked to see uh, all of these companies any company completely ignore some sort of transition. Uh, the, the European majors are leaning harder into it. The Americans, not so much. But I think over the next couple of years, perhaps you know, some cleaning up the balance sheets and freeing up some capital to do something. I would be very surprised if we didn't see uh, more contingency plans into what is our life after oil. Right, so be watching out for, for folks to capitalize on this opportunity to print a whole bunch of cash to then redeploy it into some of these uh, these new business lines, which I guess is a good transition for us. All right, if we look out the next, I would say three to five years, the cycle looks constructive towards oil. Oh, companies. I think the cycle looks great for three to five years. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If if that's your investment time horizon, uh, if you're looking to hold something beyond that, say like you're looking at something to own for a dividend for ten to fifteen, then you might need to start making some different considerations. Yeah. So, so as you look at, at this current cycle, let's talk about maybe companies that stand out to you as, as you know, places to look to potentially invest in this, this big, this big upswing. I think, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs is calling for $80 to $90 oil by the end of the year. That leaves these companies making quite a bit of money. Uh, who would be on your short list of, of businesses to look at if you wanted to get some exposure to, to this trend and this, this cycle as it, as it starts to swing up, Jason. Yeah. I'll kick us off here. Um, one that's just become more and more interesting to me um, that I followed for a number of years is Diamondback Energy, ticker FANG, F-A-N-G. So this is a pure play essentially on the on the Permian Basin in Texas, mostly mostly oil. They have um, some some gas too, but they're really focused on on oil. What's really interesting to me about about Diamondback is this is a company that's really done an incredible job of developing assets and getting their costs down and also thinking about a really disciplined capital allocation. Um, approach. Their CEO, Travis Dice, has been there for almost 10 years now, and they've done a great job in terms of costs. This is a company that says they can maintain their dividend if they can realize $35 per barrel oil, right? And that's that's pretty attractive considering where oil is, is right now. Um, and and there's some of their costs or cash costs, I think are around $32 a barrel for a lot of their oil. And that's when you, if you're going to invest in any sort of a pure play on, on ENP exploration and production, you need to focus on their, their costs, not what oil, not what you can project oil to sell for. You have to start at where is their baseline, right? What's the basement. And, and for this company, that's, that's really good. Now, I also like their, their, their approach to returning capital to, to shareholders, the goal is to take half of uh, free cash flow and either repurchase shares or pay a dividend. Do one of those two things. They take the rest of free cash flow and they throw it at their balance sheet, uh, retiring debt. So that means the dividend is going to be variable, right? That means over time, is, as oil prices move around, they're going to have a variable dividend. I think in this business, it's smart to have to have that model so that you can focus on the health of the business first and not get so caught up in thinking you have to keep a promise of a certain dividend level that you end up hurting the company. So I think it's an interesting company, especially over the next five years. Tyler, tell me where I'm wrong. Well, you're not wrong. I'm just a, 
I am a deeply cynical person who has been burned by this industry so much that Amen, I, I, I view I view basically any pure independent exploration production company as more or less as a levered bet on oil prices. Like we can talk about uh, you know their positioning and and whatnot, but if you really think that oil prices are going to go up over a couple of years, independent EMPs or just they're going to rip it. it Right, because they—that's all they do. They move on oil prices, and that's the and, thing, right? But, There's a very good chance we're going to see the stock price correlate with oil prices. Right. The the only problem is, is you're basically trying to be a, a soothsayer on what oil prices are going to do for a couple of that years is from the now. Risk. It really is, and that can go wrong. That um, it, it's just not my investment style uh, in the oil and gas industry. I've always kind of looked at. 10 to 15 year time horizons. Mm -hmm. And because of that, uh, the one that attracts me the most right now is uh, Total Energy, the French uh, integrated major. As I was talking about earlier, uh, of all the integrated companies right now, I think they have the most practical and uh, forward thinking plan as to what does our company look like 10 years from now? What does our company look like 20 years from now? And they they are laying a foundation for that. They actually just and they put have out, been for a long time, right? This isn't yeah. something the company started a year ago. Uh, what they are, they actually just put out their capital plan and, and their sustainability. Uh, and it was coupled with a sustainability uh, presentation for their annual meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that they had mentioned was, is over the next 10 years, they envision somewhere between a 20 to 30% decline in oil production, a doubling of their natural gas and LNG production, Mm -hmm. and a a significant multiples larger um, business in utilities, uh, electrification, hydrogen production, and, and making a lot of those growth investments. And they're actually allocating significant capital to that right now. Um, I see that as a good way for anybody looking to bet on energy, just being a long-term growth uh, thing, either in renewables, either in natural gas, but they're doing it in a way that seems like they're going to transition well. And, you know, they have an exit plan from the oil business, despite generating gobs of cash right now. I think they're breaking dividend after uh, capital expenditures and after dividend, they're break even. It's like 35 to $37 a barrel. So they're generating massive amounts of cash flow right now that they're going to be able to plow into paying down debt, getting the company financially ready for this transition and rewarding shareholders along the way. Yeah, there's been this trend you mentioned with, with Total. I mean, the European folks are really ahead of the curve when it comes to, to, to transition. Uh, what's special about the European market that's really driving that difference in behavior over there? Uh, probably a larger pressure from uh, the investor base because, you know, obviously that it's a more European-centered market, European board of directors, uh, things like that. Uh, as well, I... I would push back on all of the European majors doing it because I think Shell and BP got thrust into it more recently uh, and had to take very drastic measures to implement that. You saw BP slash their dividend significantly, Shell slash their dividend significantly. The one thing that's impressive about Total doing this is they've kept uh, shareholder uh, return 
pretty much on par and saying, we can do this without murdering our shareholders. I'm going to, so I've got a, a, go ahead. Go, go go ahead, ahead. Yeah. I was just going to make a 32nd pitch for Philip 66, kind of in the same vein. So this is a company that's dividend yields, like four and a half percent. It's not a, it's not a producer of oil right there buyer so that that insulates them from a lot of the price movement. And I think there's a lot of, of kind of future proofing already built into their business too. their petrochemicals business relies large on natural gas. There's less concern about the carbon footprint of that. And it's so important for things like fertilizers and, and those sorts of materials, but also in the refining business, they're steadily slowly starting to make a shift to renewables. And I think as the market demand for that grows as the profitability model gets better, they're going to continue to do it. So that's one that I really like a lot for the next really 10 years. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, so yeah, so Philip 66, in addition uh, to Diamondback Energy for Jason. So what I was going to say, yeah, so mine, uh, we kind of have a good diversity here. So Jason had a U.S. shale producer. Tyler had a, a European oil major. And so my my company, I think, is most interesting to me right now is Canadian Nash, uh, Natural Resources, which is CNQ. This is a Canadian oil sands producer, a little bit different. So I, I fall in the bucket, like, like Tyler was talking about, where I, I view it as if I'm investing in oil and gas today, it's a three to five year time horizon. I'm looking for this and a levered bet on oil prices. So a couple of things I'm thinking about there. Number one is who are the folks that their shareholders are going to let them drill? So like the European folks, it's hard to hard to drill more. U.S. oil majors are getting attacked by activists. So the folks that are really going to be allowed to drill is folks that are small enough to not get activist pressure or folks where it's really, I think, systemically important to their economy. I think that's true in Canada. You know, oil in Canada is really important to the economy and not not exactly in the way oil is important to Texas, but it, it rhymes. It's kind of in a similar boat. So yeah. I think there's a little bit yeah. less pressure there. You also look at the, the break-evens um, in, particularly for, for Canadian National, you're sub $30. I've seen some estimates as low as $23. They were generating positive free cash flow even the past couple of years with difficult conditions in the market. As uh, oil prices move up, it's really incredible leverage they generate uh, They generate from those, those higher oil prices. You also look at the duration of their assets. Oil sands, much longer duration than the quick on, quick off um, of, of shale assets. There's there's some negatives to that. It's, hard, it's harder to, to get these things up and running for oil sands. But once they're running, the upkeep costs are lower and you have um, longer duration. They've increased dividends for, for 20 plus straight years and they have a capital allocation uh, a framework like, like Jason had talked about. So once once they, uh, they're, they're going to delever until they get down to $15 billion of absolute debt on the balance sheet. And then going forward, they're going to deploy 50% of that to the balance sheet and the other half to share repurchases. Currently, they're buying back about 1% of the stock um, every quarter. I think that can accelerate as they start printing cash uh, uh, with oil prices high. Um, and the last thing to mention is if you look at their hedge book, they are unhedged. So a lot of these uh, on the oil side, they, are, they have some hedges in, in natural gas. So you look at a lot of these you know, small oil producers, you're like, hey, they're going to print so much money uh, uh, because of the oil price in the market. Well, not true for all of them because a lot of them have hedged their, their, uh, their oil production significantly at prices in you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, not really benefiting from the upside here. You look at Canadian National, they have, all, excuse, excuse me, Canadian Natural Resources, they have all those uh, uh, you know, low break-even uh, conditions, but also are unhedged. So they get all the benefit of the upside here. So because of some of those macro conditions, also as well as the break-evens um, and, and the hedge book, I think uh, Canadian Natural Resources stands out to me. Um, but yeah, so, so those would be um, um, our three picks. I think one, one thing to keep in mind, as we mentioned earlier, though, is any investment in these, these oil producers, to a certain extent, is you're making a bet on what's going to happen in the energy market. And one of the unique things about the energy market is uh, there are some national governments that at any particular time could pull the rug out from under you and, and increase production. So as somebody who's investing in this space, how do you think about that kind of scythe 
that's hanging over your head at any time, uh, you know, OPEC could decide to turn the taps on full bore and, and really catch you flat footed. So how do you think about allocating cash and, and, you know, forming a thesis as an investor with that, uh, with that hanging over you? Tyler, go first. <laughs> I, I'm going to be probably in very much the minority here um, in that I haven't given OPEC Russia major country decisions or political decisions on oil, a, a hair of a thought in my investment thesis, simply because it really, it depends on your investment time horizon over three to five years. Yeah, you could get wiped out by something like that. But if you start looking at it from a 10 to 15 year time horizon, all of those things tend to come out in the wash. And so it, I, my view is, is I, I tend to ignore it for the simple fact that I just extend my time horizon. Um, for those that are concerned, yeah, that's that's what makes it a levered bet because those are the variables that are going to make you sink or swim. Yeah, I actually large, I largely agree. And I think the key is one of the reasons you don't have to think about it, Tyler, is you own companies that that have competitive advantages and enough diversity in their business that oil prices alone don't drive their cash flows, right? They have other parts to their businesses, you get into you know the integrated majors, right? You, you own a toll booth business that you still make money, whatever oil prices are. Demand affects it, but price is not so much. I think that's important. It's actually one of the reasons I like Phillips 66, right? Is because they are largely detached from, from, from prices. But at the end of the day, you have to think about it, I'd say, as a buying opportunity. Sometimes when you see like Russia and Saudi went to went to war late January, right before the COVID shutdowns happened. So oil prices were already on the way down because they were flooding the markets with oil. And those sorts of events can be buying opportunities, right? If you have great businesses on your on your watch list, you may be able to add if they're falling oil prices down because of some big macro stuff going on. Yeah. One thing I think about too is um, you know, Tyler mentioned uh, you know, life after oil for some of these um these energy companies, I mean, these, these national governments know that too. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there are certain incentives in place, whether that's, you know, uh, drill as much as you can to realize as much profit as you can or hold back production so you can maximize price. There, there's a game theory going on here uh, uh, with these companies. You can try to get in their, their heads a little bit, but also they, they take you by surprise. They do things that are even destructive to their own industry. You mentioned the Russia, Saudi, Price were like nobody won that. Everybody was a was a loser there. Sometimes they're just irrational right. stuff that will will take you by surprise. Here's something you always have to think about. Um, or just a bunch of shale execs drilling because they'll they'll annihilate just as much capital as anybody else will. There you yeah. go. Yeah, they've probably done more harm for U.S. oil investors than OPEC Plus has in its entirety. Yeah. So so for me, if I'm putting together a portfolio, um, I really wouldn't want this particular sector to get any bigger than about maybe 10% or so, just because there's so many things that are just not in control of the business itself. That said, lots of upside uh, potential benefits. If we sustain these higher prices and everybody plays along, we'll see what happens. But uh, as we have updates and things uh, uh, to discuss, I'll be looking forward to having you guys back on the podcast to break it all down. Until then, thanks for joining me. Looking forward to it. It was fun. Tyler, it's fun to be back on with you, buddy. Same here, buddy. I, last minute on the way out, just a fun little fact. I saw it on Twitter. If an energy equivalent price, uh, natural gas in Europe right now, if you were to convert it to oil, is north of $200. $200 a barrel. Right, right. Guess it's what, insane. ladies and gentlemen? Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? U.S. gas producers don't really have access to that market, so it doesn't even really matter. There you go. Yeah, Tough nuggies. 
that's a whole, that's a, you know, we could spend another, another hour talking about substitution effects from natural gas to oil as prices go up. Lots of interesting things to get, to get into, but that's a whole nother podcast. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Tyler. We'll, we'll break it down next time. Until then, as always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Jason Hall and Tyler Crow. I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.